Immersive audio podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is joined in studio by Jane Gondlet and Tessa Ratazinska. Jane is a writer for film and theatre and is the founder of the In My Shoes Project, a library of interactive experiences that recreate real-life events and encounters. Tessa is a documentary filmmaker, installation artist and creative producer for virtual reality and performance. She was the creative producer of In My Shoes Intimacy, which was written and directed by Jane. In this episode, Jane and Tessa speak about the early adoption of VR, reaching out to younger audiences and new technology as a platform for immersive storytelling. As always, I'm very excited to present our guests today, Jane Gontlet and Tessa Ratajinska. And lately they've been working with immersive technology to tell stories differently and launched several successful films as part of In My Shoes project series. Welcome guys. It's good to see you. Thank you for having us. Great. How are you today? Really good. Excited to get back into intimacy sound space, like (laughs) back in this room. Yeah. It's really talk, great to see talk, you again and have a chat with you about where it's gone. So from being cramped in this room with you, finishing it off and editing it and making it happen, to going away for a few months and the sort of journey, roller coaster adventure that's taken us on since then. So it's nice. To- and now you're back here to tell us more about what happened in the past three months, which is great. I'm looking forward to that. Um, so I'm just going to start with some basic warm up questions. How did you two start working together? Uh, We started working together through our wonderful mutual friend, Catherine Allen, who is another VR producer. And I was working for her before. And she knew Jane through the VR community, I guess, is is the way to describe it. And uh, you were looking for a helping hand and my hands were free. And so she put us together. Yeah, I think she saw, I think Catherine's very good at pairing people up and teaming people up. I think she really enjoys it, actually, um, sort of seeing relationships grow and seeing people grow in the industry. She's very much a fairy godmother. How did you get into VR? So I have always been into theatre and the power of storytelling. And I started making audio pieces. So I started, I was reading about this today, actually reading my notes and going through my things. And there was a project I did called Tea Ceremony at the End of the Universe that I did that was funded by Secret Garden Party and Wilderness Festival. And it was an audio project. And what we did was we collected real life stories and we, about all sorts of different things like Zapatistas in Mexico and um, Olympic medal winners. And we created an environment that was like a cafe we had these trays for each story with props. Um, so it would have a teapot and a teacup and people would put their head and they'd be taken to the table by a waitress or waiter and um, they'd be given this set. The audio piece would guide them through 
the narrative, the story, and also the props so they'd open the teapot and find something from the story. So it was a very, it's quite a twee kind of way of telling stories. And then after they'd been through, after participants had been through that experience, um, we gave them the bill, which on the other side had a notebook for them to leave their stories behind. And through that, we collected hundreds of stories and the amount of effort that people put into it, the passion that they put into the storytelling really taught me about the currency of storytelling, you know, and how the relationships that we built through that and what people got from writing their own audio pieces and experiencing that. And then I discovered video goggles, which are old school headsets made by Fusics and, um, thought they might be another way, sort of a step forward of using audio and visual. I used those from 2009, we made the first project, and that was... Well, that's quite some time ago, right? <laughs> yeah, in terms of headsets, audio-visual headsets, yes. It is, and nobody knew what I was doing, so I'd say, oh, I'm, using, um, I'm using video goggles, and it would be, what's that? So trying to explain this project for me was a nightmare. Um, Facebook buying Oculus was the best thing for my um, career in terms of being able to describe the sort of work that I was doing because people started to be able to get their head around it because they'd read about it in the press. I can imagine it was like a massive jump forward, like you probably just, you know, had a massive sigh like from the relief, like now I can do this properly. Yeah, I was just waiting. So I saw Oculus on Kickstarter. So I have always got my eye open for new technology and new platforms to tell stories um, on. And um when I read about Oculus on Kickstarter, I was really excited. And then I just spent years waiting for them to develop and stop making people sick and just, come on, please. And I'm like that now with um, AR technology. So I'm kind of just waiting for things to develop. But I got to play with HoloLens. Yeah. And I think the concept is really exciting. I'm just exploring ideas and ways to use technology to create high-impact experiences. I'm quite nervous about using technology for the sake of using technology. For me, it needs to be the right platform to tell the story with the highest impact. I think that the work that I've seen that's been good has started with a story and then decided which platform to tell it on. Mm -hmm. I think the pieces that I've seen that have been quite weak have been the ones that start with the technology and then... Yeah. So far, everybody I spoke to in this room and in general, um, it all comes back to, you know, simple concept that the story, the concept has to be really strong. And technology is it's just tools of telling the story rather than the other way around. You know, however, sometimes it could, it could be easily overlooked because you get excited, you know, I've got, I've got this new thing, like I've got to use it, like how do I use it? But, you know, and things could be quite limiting uh, at early stages, you know. HoloLens, you know, it's amazing. We can see what's possible, but I think it's just, it's a little bit too early, you know, like you can't really like do anything too sophisticated with it. But it's also yeah. interesting to play with it and see what its strengths are and see yeah. if you can come up with concepts that work for that rather than trying to shoehorn specific things together. It's about either looking at the technology and brainstorming ideas and working out how to use it or starting with a story and then... Yeah. It's early days for AI. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be picking up like exponentially. So mm. I'm quite excited to see what people like yourself are going to come up with. Yeah, however, I think quite often I do go back to audio. The power of audio is really, really important. And actually I see that very much in VR experiences and AR are really focusing on. So the audio in HoloLens is great. The directional speakers, it's great. And yeah. um, there's so much, and binaural sound, there's so much 
um, time and money and resources being invested in the development of audio because it's so powerful and so important. And I actually think that um, quite a lot of the experiences that I've written in audio um, probably much more high impact using the audio than they would have been if I tried to do them in a headset. Well, that, that's music to our ears, believe it or not. Um, what about you, Tessa? How'd you get into VR? Was In My Shoes Project your first venture or do you have any experience prior to that? Yeah, so uh, I was sort of working um, in installation art and kind of immersive experiences uh, in, in, in the art world. Uh, before and then when I graduated university I was trying to find a way to to marry that with my interest in like non-fiction and then I happened to like uh, stumble into a Catherine Allen workshop where she was talking about um, her latest VR piece and kind of the impact of VR and I suddenly was like this is it this is exactly where I need to be and so just that was uh 10 months ago and I've just been constantly like trying to get as much experience and working with as many different people in the field as I can and then me and Jane started up a partnership and that's been really amazing to work on the intimacy project from this beginning idea and taking it all the way through to a finished piece and then now taking that piece around the world it's just been an amazing experience. What was a transition from your previous experience with traditional theatre, conventional films? What Was it easy and natural? Perhaps you found yourself in a totally new territory. Did you feel that uh, there was a need to change your mindset about how you conceptualise and create most of content? I think because I went through it in stages, so I did audio and then video goggles and then 360, and now I'm looking at different things. I think it's been quite a nice transition for me, but in terms of industry, the arts industry and the tech industry are so different. So I've been going to um, VR meetups for years when they were tiny and in basements in Hackney, and I go into these dark rooms under pubs with people that had spent ages developing, not, I can't even remember what really, but I go in and have these headsets stuck on my head and think, oh, these are fancy. But the content, there was just no real content. I didn't really understand why this was being sort of done. So it was just really interesting. And then um, going to larger meetings and larger groups and just seeing how different my experience of working in the art industry is to being involved in the tech industry. Um, and the language between the two industries and how difficult actually it's been for me to sometimes communicate with tech specialists because different words mean different things. Um, me trying to understand their descriptions of things is probably as hard, you know, and vice versa. So that's been quite complicated. It's very different languages. Mm. I'm really enjoying it. Actually, I really like it and I think it informs my practice. Yeah. Well, for me, um, like as I said before, the, the idea of um, VR as a kind of immersive space to tell a non-fiction story at its base was like a eureka moment. Like this is definitely where I wanna where I wanna be and where kind of all my work that was quite separate, where I was making documentaries and making these installations just came together quite like naturally. But I would agree that it's the um, kind of atmosphere of the of the two worlds of arts and how arts funding works versus how tech and tech funding works and um, technical 
language and a kind of lack or, or like um, the idea that you would experiment a lot, which is how people in, in the arts world, theatre and, and arts, I guess, is the same in that you would experiment and experiment until you came up with something. Whereas in the tech world, it's kind of like you should know what you're going to make before you've ever even sort of spoken it, you know. So that, that was quite uh, a change. But it's, yeah, it's interesting to work with people who work that way and to learn to speak that language and to learn to um, work with the technology has been kind of the best, my favourite thing about it, which is, which is what I'm doing at the moment, is just trying to learn as much as I can about the technology so that I can act as a translator between kind of like conceptual ideas and actually what's available to, to be made in, with the technology. That's been quite an eye-opener for us, is learning about budget. So looking at an artist's budget. So say we're applying for £15,000 for a project, which feels like a lot of money. And I was talking to somebody that works in the VR industry and they said, what are you going to do, take clients out for dinner with that? So it's just been quite interesting to look at the different business models and try and learn, actually, from different people's approaches, because that was quite an eye-opener. It's quite a surprise. Yeah, I can imagine. It's easy, easily done, like, you just get excited and, like, can we do this and can we do that? And, like, every small decision just adds up and you end up in a financial situation. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, just going back to the previous question a little bit, in, in your opinion, what are the major differences between traditional ways of storytelling and newly emerging technology? And is that a good or bad thing? The thing that really excites me about new technology as a platform for storytelling is that it reaches out to quite a diverse audience. I really like that my work can be taken internationally. That excites me because I get to learn from international audiences. I get to see the impact and how things um, differ enormously. And that really excites me. Um, I think one of... Well, I know one of the highlights of the In My Shoes project for me was when we launched In My Shoes Dancing With Myself at Sheffield Documentary Festival. And it was in a cafe and we had windows all around the cafe and a gang of teenagers came in and they were giving me some stick and starting some banter about me being there for the festival and what's this art stuff. And I took them into sitting down and they saw, the minute they saw these virtual reality headsets, um, they got quite excited, said, do you want to sit down and put the headsets on? They put them, put them on. And just everything changed. They gave me a running commentary of the experience they were having. So dancing myself is a recreation of me having an epileptic seizure. And when they put the headsets on and they look down, they can see my hands and my body. And the first thing that they said was, my fingernails are beautiful. Um, as in talking about himself as my fingernails are beautiful. And then he was talking about the waitress saying she's really hot and oh, I like this that's on the menu. And this woman's being really horrible to me because it's sort of, it's a piece which is a recreation of an experience I had with some friends and some friends of their friends. And then afterwards, um, he went through a seizure from my perspective. And then afterwards, our relationship had changed completely. He wanted to talk to me, he wanted to ask questions, he wanted to share stories, he wanted to talk to me about his own experiences. Um, and then, so that was really powerful for me. And then the next day, a lady came in and she handed me a small child 
and sat down and put the headset on as if she knew exactly what she was doing and as if she'd heard all about it and knew what she was doing. Went through the experience. I'm a bit confused because what this lady's done is handed me a child and blindfolded herself. So it's quite trusting. And then when she took the headset off, I learned that she was his mum. So he'd gone home and explained the experience to her to a point where she knew what she had to do when she came in the door. She trusted me enough to hand me a child and um, had gone out of her way to come to see this project. And what really excites me about new technology is I'm not sure if I'd said, oh, come into the theatre and see me tell a story about my experiences of epilepsy or come in to the cinema and see this. Whereas to say, come and put on a headset, it's the excitement. It's about reaching out to younger audiences. And it's also about the fact that I think younger people start making 360 and VR. And that really excites me too. I'm really curious as to, because they have such different relationships with technology. I didn't have a mobile phone till I was 21. You know, sort of, I'm quite excited to see younger people getting involved as well. I feel like this um, particular story, like, totally lived up to its purpose, you know, in my shoes. For me, that was it. I could have just been like, right, I can retire now. For me, that was the achievement. That was the ultimate aim. Interesting. You kind of mentioned it briefly already, but I wanted to ask you a bit more about it, if you don't mind. Uh, during 2007, you experienced a traumatic brain injury and went coma for three weeks. Could you please describe your journey and your thinking process that led you um, to the first project? Yeah, waking in Slough. I woke up in Slough. So that's not something necessarily many people would say, oh, I wish I was Slough. Um, so the MIT's project started, so following the brain injury, I really struggled to communicate. So I started to explore alternative methods of communication. So I started making audio pieces to put people in my shoes. So I say, close your eyes, imagine you're in my shoes, you're in this situation, you can't communicate, you're humiliated. So guiding them through that. And I used to do it with a tiny dictaphone and just record stories that I wanted to tell. I wanted, people were quite nervous of, nervous about talking to me about the brain injury. People often really couldn't understand me. So it was quite a good way for me to help people to understand and I think it had quite a huge impact on my relationships because it meant that if I tried to explain something in person, I'd often struggle with the words, especially if I was anxious or um, frightened of talking about specific things. And then I started working as a mentor at the neurological hospital and um, realised that people's relationships were a huge issue when it came to brain injuries. And I made a piece with a mother and daughter and I made a piece with the daughter from her perspective about living with a brain injury. And I made a piece with the mother from her perspective about living with the daughter with brain injury so that they could listen to it from each other's perspectives. And it was designed so they could sit next to each other and hold hands. And they were guided to reach out and hold each other's hands. They were guided to look at each other. They were guided to interact. So it was very intimate. And the impact of that was quite a surprise for me. And the constantly got emails, regularly got emails from them to say thank you and how it had come up in conversation and what an important part of the recovery process it had been. I was quite surprised. And then I discovered video goggles. I wanted to play with those and that's where Waking in Slough came. So I was in Oxford. It was late in the evening. Um, 
the station smelt like urine. It was horrible. I remember that. I remember climbing onto the train. And I remember really clearly the build-up to a seizure that I had on the train. And I woke up in Slough. They'd found me underneath the table. The train guard had found me underneath the table. And something that I'd really struggled with communicating to friends and family was what it's like to have an epileptic seizure. That was a result of the brain injury. And I saw this as quite... I remembered this one quite well. I often didn't remember seizures very well. I thought, how can I recreate this? Video goggles seemed like perfect way of doing that because I could show people the world through my eyes and I could play them my thoughts through the audio. So myself and two friends and a Canon D60 camera and a um, tiny dictaphone got a train from Oxford to back to London. We had a 50 pound budget, so I could only afford three train tickets and I had a tiny director, um, really talented filmmaker, holding a camera in front of my face to film it from first person perspective. I think she probably had her legs wrapped around my waist for part of it. It was all very, we had to be quite creative about how we did it, but we filmed that for the Vizics, for the video goggles. And that was really just an experiment. It was a, how can I show people what it's like to have an epileptic seizure? And then we did a test performance at the Battersea Arts Centre and it went down really well. And then it just skyrocketed and took me on a crazy adventure. I ended up um, showing it on stage. I shared a stage with Oliver Sacks. I got to show it in New York. I got to travel around the world with it, using it as a presentation, use it as a demonstration for medical students. It was just, it was a real surprise. The impact it had on audiences, what they what people really shared with me, the stories they shared with me after seeing it, was very powerful. Do you have strict set of scripts and narrative in mind when you start these projects or do they evolve as the project is progressing? I tend to work with real life stories. So it's if a subject or a story excites me. So it might be somebody who tells me a story and I'm excited by that and want to recreate it. Or I'm excited about a subject and I want to do that. Or there's a subject I want to explore. So we're currently talking about um, the future of technology and the impact it will have on society, future of politics and, and the future of the environment. So just exploring those themes and collecting stories which might help us to explore those. Let's talk about the intimacy project a bit more. Um, so I've got several questions about you that. You that one inside out. <laughs> Actually, I don't. Um, using virtual reality, exploring the concept of trust and connection in the latest film, In My Shoes, Intimacy, which premiered at the 2017 Sheffield Dog Fest. The Intimacy Project is an experience which invites two strangers to sit on a sofa together and become partners in the virtual world. All we have is each other. Where did this phrase come from? Were <laughs> we drunk? Yeah, I think Jane just... That's caught... the best answer. Yeah, she... <laughs> she just called me up and whispered it down the phone and there we go, that was it. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> it's very likely. All we have is each other. I think that was kind of the running theme through the making of intimacy, actually. I think there were moments when it was very, you know, it was very tense, it was very... 
um, quick turnaround. <laughs> I think there were quite a lot of moments when I sort of closed my eyes and was just like, oh, we have it's each other. Possibly in this recording studio with you guys as well. It was a case of, right, let's run with it. Perfect. But it's also uh, because of um, the power of intimacy and the importance of it. So how the impact it can have and how quite a lot of people live without very much intimacy in their lives and how some people crave it and some people don't want it. So it's about exploring that. But I think a lot of things that came up was how important it was. So that's where all we have is each other. Okay. Please tell our audience uh, what's been happening since you successfully launched this project. Uh, uh, yeah, so Shefford was just really amazing to just fight to to have somewhere to launch it and to, to get that immediate feedback from audiences on, on how they experienced the piece because it was all, we didn't know how it would affect people or, or it was, it happened, it, the piece was finished and immediately opened at DocFest. So it was the best kind of window for us into our audiences to be there. Um, and it was really surprising actually the way it exceeded our expectations in the way that people met on it and people became so close. We have a great story where uh, one of our friends, um, we, we met up with her for a drink after she'd been to see Intimacy and she'd just managed to bring the guy that she did it with with her because he felt so intimate with her that he just invited himself along. And we know... We now have mutual friends who met on intimacy and um, we have, uh, I had a great experience because I was also working at Sheffield on a different venue. I would hear people talk about intimacy and uh, talk about how they felt about the other person that they were doing it with and how they felt about being another gender, um, being another age, being another culture, because obviously it's an international festival. We had all different... Um, people from all over the world doing it. So it was, it was amazing to be at Sheffield. That was, that was great for us. Any love stories? We would love one. We're waiting. Because <laughs> I remember our initial conversation, and I've got it among my questions. Um, you said that you wanted to create a very intimate atmosphere, which can not only drive audience emotionally, but also physiologically, perhaps. For example, causing a sense of arousal. How did that work out? Um, it was actually a lot more vanilla than I'd expected it to be. I wanted to get a bit kinkier in the making of it, but we towed it down a little bit. That's the next level of intimacy, yeah. I think. I think we might explore that next time. Okay. But I think that people experience all sorts of different things. I think experience, everyone experienced, everyone's experiences were quite different. But for us, yeah, the highlight was watching people leave together. So watching people take off their headsets and look at each other. That was, you know, people didn't just take off the headsets and leave. They did take off the headsets and look at each other and more often than not left together and spoke. And I think that was the highlight. It's incredible considering how distant and alien people are towards each other these days. Everybody's in a rush, everybody's in a hurry. Nobody really opens up, especially within such a short period of time or kind of unusual set of circumstances. And then there you go, three minutes later, you see two strangers walking away, talking, willing to have a drink together, you know, whatnot. It's fascinating. Um, so in, as you know, in the intimacy piece, people are encouraged to touch each other. So one of the characters reaches out and touches the other person. Getting people to touch each other whilst wearing headsets has been one of the biggest challenges. But I think we've worked out how we might crack it in future projects. But it was really interesting to experiment with that and to learn 
from it and see how we can push that further. I'd quite like people to feel a bit more relaxed and comfortable in headsets. That's one of the biggest things. How can we make someone laugh while they're wearing a headset? Because that's really hard, because people are so tense. How can we make people a bit more intimate? Do you get people sign some kind of disclaimers <laughs> before they put headsets on? No. No, maybe, maybe if we push things a bit further, we might. But yeah, some people did touch each other and that was quite funny. There were a couple of squeals. <laughs> Definitely. I think actually we, we almost do the opposite in that like part, one of the things that we focused on, on intimacy whenever we show it is actually the lead up to going into the headset should be as relaxed as possible. So uh, rather than sign a contract, it's more like really ease people into what they're about to experience and just let them know that whatever might happen is fine. And that's kind of something that we've, we're trying to focus on in, in all of our work is making sure that the environment that people see the work in is relaxed enough that they can really kind of explore how they might want to experience the work. No, I totally agree. By adding some kind of bureaucracy before the experience totally removes that sort of authenticity from the process. Mm. If you just let people be and feel natural and, you know, react naturally without even realising what they're doing, that's perhaps what gives you the most you know, open and authentic result. Mm. Do you find a use of immersive audio uh, in this project further cultivated a greater sense of presence and intimacy? Yeah, definitely. The The sound is, is a really important part of intimacy um, and the way people experience um, that inner monologue is, is really important to the whole In My Shoes project as it stands. Yeah. Yeah, I think the narrative is really important, but I also think the sound and the way it's used. I think the the way that you guys did the sound meant that it, we could guide people, we'd guide people's body language. So it meant that if people heard things from behind them, they'd shift their focus to there. And if we moved it so that they, it was close to the person sitting next to them, they'd shift their focus over there. So I think there's a lot. And also the way that the actors performed combined with um, the way that the sound was recorded can have a really big impact. So especially the first scene um, with that very tense, fast inner monologue of, of one of the characters sets up the person in that side of the experience immediately to enter into this kind of stressed post-work feeling, which is how the film opens for, for one person. Um, and that and I, I've had a lot of comments about that feeling of, of kind of tense self-deprecation that, that a lot of people uh, resonate with. And the, the way that that's recorded um, so close into somebody's ear is, is, is very affecting, I think, more than it would be um, just recorded straight, coming straight towards them. Um, what type of reactions did you have from various audiences so far? Just very varied. Like um, I had one woman... Um, I overheard her talking about intimacy and saying actually that she could really feel that it was written, the, the, the female monologue, she said she could really feel they were ri actually written by a woman, which was really uh, nice to hear that that had come across, that we'd made an authentic enough character that she could, she could really feel it. Um, and, and also I really loved, um, I, I actually kind of like it when people don't like the characters or, or um, I had one woman say to me like I can't believe that people really talk to themselves like that anymore because she was kind of 
I, I wouldn't like to guess her age. I'm gonna, she was an older lady. She was like, I gave up talking to myself like that a long time ago. And it was quite impactful to be taken back to that place where I'm so self-critical and care so much about what other people think of me. Um, but also on the lighter side, that we, we're beginning to see uh, the differences in different cultural cultures and how they might view intimacy. I'm, I'm really interested to see more of that as we take it to different countries. Um, but yeah, I, I, one woman did say to me, uh, there's, a, there's a particular scene where uh, one of the characters tells another character that she doesn't like the way that he makes lasagna. And this um, South American woman said to me that only in England would she have waited that long to say she didn't like the lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, it's, yeah, it's specific humour, I guess, isn't it? So it's interesting to see how other people will see it. I learned though, at the weekend, that the BBC programme that's sold the most internationally is Keeping Up Appearances. So I found that quite interesting. Do you remember that programme? More than Top Gear. With the... Uh... Hyacinth Bouquet. Bouquet. Absolutely. So <laughs> more than Top Gear, more than a lot of the other shows that you'd think would be most. Yeah. So it's interesting because that's very English humour. Um, so I'm curious as to how but our work will go down. I also am curious to see um, how physically, because, because not only is it concepts of humour, but also concepts of physical space and boundaries are different culture to culture and how the impact of making people sit that close to each other on the sofa will change culture to culture. I'm, I'm really interested to see how that, how that goes down. Maybe people might touch each other a bit more, fingers crossed. Who knows? We should get people to take photos. <laughs> I heard you are touring the world with this project now. Congratulations. I would like to hear more about it. Um, where have you been so far? And where you're heading next. And also going back to the previous question, do people from different countries and speaking different languages, etc., understand the project or the concept of the project differently? So it's started at Sheffield Documentary Festival. That's where it was launched. That went down very well. And then it's now being toured by the British Council around South America. It was translated into Spanish. Um, it's going to be going to rain. I'm not sure how much, which ones are we allowed to reveal? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's doing a series of UK, <laughs> uh, UK screenings, I'll say. Um, because at the date of this podcast, there may be, well be more, who knows? About that. Um, but it's, it's definitely confirmed to go to America, um, East Coast. We're hoping to also take it West Coast, and that's in the works, and um, to Australia, which should be very exciting. So, so we're going to have pretty much a full range of English-speaking um, takes on the piece, and then, uh, depending on translations, I guess uh, we can see where else we might be able to take it around uh, in the in the world. But those are all confirmed at the moment. Do people from different countries and languages react differently? Do they interpret the concept differently? We have. It was interesting to translate the piece into Spanish because of some of the concepts don't exist in exactly the same way, <laughs> um, and some of the, um, the the pacings, I guess, is is, <laughs> is something that's different in in Latin American um, countries 
the way that people would speak to each other on public transport, for example, is different. So it's it's been quite eye-opening taking it uh, to South America and doing the translation. That was a really interesting experience. It's definitely not a simple thing to translate. It's very difficult because there's outer dialogue and inner dialogue. So it's actually really, really difficult to turn into to translate into another language. I remember that, you know, a lot of time was spent finessing those transitions, making sure that next line comes in at the right time, it's got the right pace, the right feel. There's so many things into play. And I just can't imagine having have to turn it upside down and then trying to fit all the pieces of the puzzle together again and, you know, without being able to understand that particular culture and language. On the contrary, um, I suppose there's... Um, there's some unexpected value in seeing people completely unrelated to you know this place and time trying to kind of extract their version of 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 the story you know and perhaps you might come across something you you weren't even expecting i guess the other thing is that intimacy has has kind of two layers it has the um the script and the story that is told verbally but it has a lot of physical story as well to it and that that um making two people sit next to each other and go through this experience together in a physical space is kind of barrierless in terms of language so in in other ways intimacy is really well suited to to travel the world hopefully and i guess also in the film with the actors with the performers that so much is said through their body language mm. so much of the narrative and how they're feeling we paid a lot of attention to that the actors paid a lot of attention to that when they were performing it. Yeah. It's all about the subtleties. Mm. Absolutely. Subtleties of being human. How did you deal with the subtitles? Did you split them into like two layers or give them like a different colour coding so people know what, what's internal, what's external dialogue? It was interesting. It was um, to, to subtitle a 360 space is, is quite unusual. Um, funnily enough, I have worked a lot with text before, just in my own personal um, artwork. So for me, I was I love placing text and pacing text. I think it can be a really interesting uh, way to to work. Um, but I had to kind of hold back on being um, getting too involved in that, really. But it's we used the the t the space, the three sixty space gives you enough um, places to place place text. That means you don't have to change colours. We were quite clear that we didn't want different colours to denote the different um, voices that you were hearing because uh, it would just be too distracting and, and take away yeah, from the performances, which are the most important part. And so we just worked with timing. We just worked because actually people are just saying half sentences or just saying one thought that pops up and goes. And we tried to make sure that the subtitles reflect that and actually the thought comes and goes so quickly that it's it doesn't matter that the text of that thought also comes and goes quickly because it's you're not supposed to read every word of it it's supposed to to flow over you so that's how we worked with it okay well let's chat more about empathy uh, obviously it played a really important role in most of your projects it's a powerful tool um can you tell us a little bit more how how you interpret that and how do you use it in your project? Do you integrate that in, in initial concept or does it sort of become an ac accidental side effect of, of the story? So 
In terms of headsets, the first piece was Waking Slough. And the idea was that I would put somebody into my shoes and I would guide them through. And I used touch, taste, smell. It was how close can I get somebody to being in my shoes? Um, so I didn't really think about the word empathy. And then after we toured it a bit, it started becoming referred to as an empathy project and it started to come up and then it began talking about empathy in um, universities with medical students, empathy in product design, empathy in, and empathy has become quite a buzzword in the last few years. And 360 and VR films, uh, VR technology has become referred to as an empathy machine, which I really struggle with. Um, because I think human beings are empathy machines. And I think that um, empathy can be inspired at bus stops. And I think that it's the storytelling, it's the human connection that inspires empathy, not the technology. So that's something that I found quite interesting to watch and build up over the last few years. Um, I think one of the projects which had the highest impact was In My Shoes Dancing With Myself. And that's because it was a recreation of an epileptic seizure that I had and I was often there to present it. Mm -hmm. And I think that people being able to watch the piece, take off the headset and recognise my face and my fingernails um, and my dress and things like that and my voice, I think possibly intensified the experience. So now I'm exploring ways I can help people to identify with the people telling the stories that I'm recreating or making um, in a high impact a way. So that's one of my biggest challenges. Um, but I'm really enjoying making work that isn't about me. I use myself as a guinea pig. So if I'm exploring a new platform or a new concept, I use one of my stories because actually it's really quite emotionally, it's quite complex if you're sharing a really personal story. And, um, I want to feel quite confident in my use of storytelling, the platform that I'm using, so that I can make sure if I'm taking somebody's personal story and recreating it, I'm doing it in a way which won't be slated. And I'd much rather there were bad reviews and people saying horrible things about my real life stories than someone else's. Um, I think, I guess one of the main things is following Dance With Myself, I would be referred to on stage and by the press as epilepsy sufferer and things like that sort of terminology that was used about me was quite a shock because I live with epilepsy and for me it's all about the intention and I try not to get too worried about the exact wording but I think it's just really important to be careful with people's stories especially if you're claiming to be promoting empathy. I think it's about showing empathy to the people whose stories you're sharing as well. But people love the backstory. People love the the kind of authenticity, if you will. You know, the, the, especially you know, as far as the people concerned who are actually involved with the content creation, if there's some kind of secret or like a backstory. It's just sort of, I guess, for for the same reason, empathy and sympathy and whatnot. People tend to connect a little bit better and, and believe easier and sort of willing to engage a little bit better as well. What's next in store for In My Shoes team? Um, well, we're, we're in a real phase of 
um, exploration at the moment and really trying to take as much inspiration from everywhere we can. So obviously the tour of uh, intimacy is going to be um, very illuminating for us in terms of different audience feedbacks and how we might put that into future work. Um, and we're also just got an eye on, um, eye on the partnership really and where that could go. So Jane's looking at for stories that are really exciting and we're both looking for tech that's really exciting and trying to forge a space um, for makers who are focused on both the, the, the collaborators and subjects of the stories and also the people who will be put into the experience because that's the other side of um, VR and empathy is, is understanding that people are giving time and their sensory, um, their actual senses into going into your 15-minute story and to, and to empathise with your audience as well, that they're giving you that yeah. attention and that you should respect that with giving them a, a full experience. So, yeah, we're, we're trying to um, forge a place for ourselves as, as makers who are focusing on that side rather than the tech um, and and sort of what's possible with tech without thinking about how it will impact both the, the um, focus of the stories and the people who experience the stories. We're also really enjoying working um, as consultants and um, doing, making collaborative work um, based on audience impact. So what we've learned through the work that we've made and the work that we've taught and the experiences we've had, um, working with other companies in an advisory role or a collaborative role, we're finding that really quite interesting and learning a lot from doing that. But also learning how to use the technology ourselves or trying it and seeing if it works and then trying again <laughs> and seeing if it works because it's, I think it's going to really help us if we know how to use the technology, if we can have a bit more time to play with it and do the filming because um, it can be quite limiting. So you both of you, which project are you most proud of and perhaps why? Well, I mean, Jane has more projects under her belt than me, so uh, she might have a different answer. But obviously I'm very proud of intimacy, um, not only as, as it stands and what we actually made, but what we learned. Uh, I think that's the, the thing I'm most proud of is like um, how effectively we put something together that people have responded to so well but also all the things that came up during the making process that that were really interesting and exciting and also um challenging and and things that we want to approach perhaps differently in the future or or find ways through in the future yeah i think that's that was the best bit about making intimacy is is how much we learned yeah i agree I think that with intimacy, we took risks in asking people to sit really closely together, hope, you know, kind of, it was a bit more experimental, a bit more unusual. I felt like we were doing things that I haven't seen other people do before, really, and I feel like we've learned so much from it. And I'm really excited to see where it's going to go with international audiences, but I'm also really enjoying taking what we've learned from intimacy and the brilliant gang, everyone that worked on it. Um, it felt like such a collaborative process felt so informed by um, the performers and a lot of it was devised and improvised 
And it was just a really great experience and we learned so much from it. What would be one piece of advice that you could give to an audience who would like to try using VR for storytelling? Ask yourself why. Why use VR? So when people contact me to talk to me about making VR work, I was, um, I was actually on an advice, I took an advisory role in Sheffield Dockfest in the marketplace. And I was sitting at a table and I was approached by people that wanted to come and talk to me about their VR projects and to pick my brains about what I learned. And the question I asked them all was, why do you want to use VR? Because it's expensive and there are so many limitations and it's complicated and it's very competitive industry. And what, when I asked people why use VR, often people couldn't answer it. And that actually meant we could brainstorm and solve a lot of the problems and actually thought about the reasons behind it and what they wanted to communicate. And um, that helped us to brainstorm and solve puzzles. But I think it's quite important. I think don't just do it for the sake of it because it's very expensive and there are lots of limitations. I think that's an incredibly useful piece of advice. Totally agree with you with every single word. Tese, do you agree? I agree that's like um, one of the main things that we're always asking ourselves uh, is, is why and, and off pieces that we see. Um, and I guess the other piece of advice would be to, to remember yeah, why you're making it and who you're making it for. You're not making it for the people that design the headphones or, or the people that design the goggles. You're making it for the people that sit there for 15 minutes and watch it and you, yeah, honour their experience uh, and, and the story within, basically. That's, that's our three kind of guiding aims uh, whenever we talk about our work. Especially because the industry is getting more and more competitive, the wonder is wearing off. So people, when the first time you put in a headset, it's so unusual. There is wonder, the, that concept of wonder, and this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this before, but that's wearing off. And people are becoming less and less impressed by the technology and more and more critical and more and more interested in the content and the experience overall. Think it's which hopefully stimulates the demand for better quality and the more complexity as far as the content concerned, which is good news for you know consumers essentially and people who haven't come across VR projects before. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast hosted by Oliver Cadell with guests Jane Gauntlet and Tessa Ratazinska. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell, Gillian Duffy and Giacomo Corpino and included music by Nobs Bergamo. Thanks for listening.